Hi, everyone. Good evening. Happy New Year. It's good to see you all. <clears throat> I hope you all had a good last you know, week or so with friends and family. Um, I don't know if any of you read the news about um, Southwest Airlines uh, and the meltdown they had. Well, we were part of that. Luckily, we got to our destination, but um, we were in California for a week and we got our luggage the day before we flew back. <laughs> um, I think that the thing that we realized is we didn't actually need any of the luggage that we didn't, get, that we didn't have with us. Next time, it's carry-on only. Like um, you, you just um, we you just don't need as much stuff as you think you do. That's probably a good lesson for always, right? <laughs> in every context. Just wish it wasn't something I had to learn from Southwest under those circumstances. Um, okay, so um, tonight's practice is going to be. Um, uh, sort of uh, using sound or hearing as an anchor. Just just that, simple. Um, super simple, very powerful practice. Um, and, um, and then afterwards, I'm gonna just say a few words about, um, uh, I guess, you know, one of the ways we can understand the difference between mindfulness practice um, and Zen practice. Uh, mindfulness practice is clearly a part of Zen practice. It's um, it's a component of Buddhist practice as a whole, but just a part. And um, in in especially in the West, in the United States, um, people often identify mindfulness with like the whole of the path of meditation. It's a part of meditation practice that's become the most well known, most influential, most popular. But and I think it's a wonderful practice, um, and I think actually many of the ways that mindfulness is taught in contemporary American culture are really wonderful. Um, but I think it's it's important once in a while to remind ourselves of the broader context, the broader Buddhist context um, from which mindfulness as a practice emerges. Um, you, you, there are are things that um, I think we can risk. There, there are um, things that can happen in our practice that, um, that can lead to problems when we, um, when we forget why mindfulness is a part of the Buddhist path rather than the whole of it. So, um, so anyway. I have a few few things to say about that um, after we sit. Okay, so um, please get into a comfortable position. Going to sit for 20, 25 minutes, and just take a few deep breaths to settle into your posture into this moment. As you breathe in. Feel your entire upper body fill up with air. And as you breathe out, let your breath be nice and slow, drawn out. Take your time letting all of the air that you've inhaled leave your body. 
As you breathe in, you might also imagine your head being slightly gently pulled up towards the ceiling as if there's a rope from the base of your spine up through the neck and skull all the way up to the ceiling above you. As you breathe in, imagine someone gently pulling on that string or rope, lengthening your back, your spine. And now please let your breath begin to come and go at its own pace, no longer intentionally lengthening the breath in any way. As the saying goes, let the breath breathe itself. So the breath might be short, long, erratic, uneven. It's fine, just let the breath find its own rhythm, which will change throughout the course of our practice together tonight. And now for the remainder of our sitting together tonight, there's no need to keep your attention fixed on the breath at all. We're gonna let the breath go. Just let the breath do its own thing. And instead, we're going to anchor our awareness on the sounds that we can hear around us. So hearing will be the primary sense that we're gonna be focusing on tonight. So just begin tuning in to whatever sounds there are in the space around you. Are there other people in the apartment or home in which you're living? Can you hear? the sounds that they may be making, sounds of footsteps, things being moved about, doors being open or shut. Can you hear any sounds from outside your home or the space you're in, perhaps the sound of the wind or cars driving by. Let that also enter your field of awareness. Perhaps you have a clock 
on the wall of the room they are in, or perhaps in a different room of your apartment or home. You can hear it ticking. Notice that sound. Or the sound that the building itself makes. We listen carefully. We can often hear this slight, subtle shifting of walls, the frame of the building itself. And as we continue listening in this way, the point is not to identify the sounds or to think about the things that are making these sounds, but just to receive these sounds as sound waves. entering our ears, passing through our bodies and our minds. And of course, as we continue focusing on sounds in this way, from time to time, thoughts will carry us away, become lost in trains of thought, fantasy, planning, remembering. It's natural and not a problem. Just notice, once you realize that you have become lost in thought, and gently bring your awareness back to your hearing and to the sounds around you.
There are always sounds coming from different directions, different kinds of objects. Just receive those sounds in an open, soft way. We're not intentionally following the breath as we sometimes do, but perhaps you can hear the sound of your own breathing, the subtle sound that your breath makes, the throat or the nose as you breathe in and out. Include that in your overall awareness of the sounds around you even the sounds that your own body makes as you sit in this way. So our primary focus is on hearing and sounds, but this doesn't mean that we won't be aware of sensations of the body, perhaps even sensations of the rise and fall of the chest or the movement of the belly as we breathe, and sensations in other parts of the body, the physical presence of the body sitting here. There's no need to exclude those sensations. They can be part of our open awareness. And no need to focus on them, just let them be there as part of the background experience. Instead, keep your focus primarily on hearing and on sounds, using that as an anchor to return to over and over again, moment by moment.
As we sit here, of course, the mind will continue doing its thing. Thoughts will arise, hang around for a while and pass away. See if you can just hear those thoughts as if they're part of the overall experience of hearing, just like the sounds around you. Thoughts too are just passing phenomena. Hear what they have to say. Don't get caught up in them. And keep attending to all the sounds around you. Sometimes when thoughts arise, we can't really just see them as thoughts. Instead, we identify with them, start thinking along with the thoughts, believing them. Notice the way that when we identify with a thought, we stop hearing all the other sounds around us. We start focusing only on the content of that thought. Attend to the way that thinking creates a screen or a wall between us and the environment around us so that we don't hear what there is to hear around us nearly so clearly when we are caught up in our thoughts. Point is not to treat our thoughts as a problem, but to notice how believing our thoughts, identifying with them, creates a sense of separation between awareness and the environment around you. Become attuned to the way that thoughts screen us from the world around us.
you may experience physical discomfort or sensations that are distracting to you. Just let them be a part of your awareness. Let whatever you feel in the body just be part of what you're aware of as you continue listening to all the sounds around you. Sensations like thoughts are not a problem. Just something to include in the field of awareness. Just let them be as you continue focusing on sounds. It's always worthwhile to pay attention to thoughts that are expecting this meditation, any given sitting to feel a certain way. Are you expecting some kind of experience? Are you disappointed a certain kind of experience isn't happening? Are you frustrated about the way this particular sitting is feeling? Notice that. Notice the kinds of thoughts that are leading to those feelings. Again, there's nothing wrong with those thoughts. The key is just to notice them. What expectations, what hopes, what desires are informing the way that you're approaching this particular sitting, this particular moment? See those thoughts as thoughts and then just return to the sounds around you.
this very moment, can you hear everything around you? Okay, that's great for tonight. Thank you. <clears throat> Please feel free to get comfortable, stretch, move around a bit. Okay, so um, so I just wanted to, you know, the the, the topic of, of mindfulness in Buddhism is a big one. I, it's not something I want to like try to like comprehensively talk about. Um, but there's just one little um, one little sort of aspect of it that I'd like to touch on tonight, which I think actually is, is and it's not a sort of theoretical concern. It's not like a philosophical concern. It's something that actually very relevant to the nitty gritty of daily practice. Um, so I think that the way that I would um, approach this sort of issue is this way. Mindfulness is part of what's called the Noble Eightfold Path. This is a path that the Buddha outlined um, to achieve liberation. So it's like the Four Noble Truths, you know, life is suffering, the cause of suffering is desire, there is a way to 
uh, escape or experience liberation from suffering. And then the Eightfold Path. The, there is a path that one can follow, experience this kind of liberation. And um, mindfulness is one component of that Eightfold Path. Um, other things uh, in, the, in the Eightfold Path include like uh, right livelihood, you know, right intention, right speech, um, samadhi or concentration, things like that. So there are other, there are other things that are involved. Um, in contemporary American culture, Western culture more broadly, but it started in the United States, um, and especially because of the work of John Kabat-Zinn, who created this system called mindfulness-based stress reduction. Um, uh, Kabat-Zinn was a long-time Zen practitioner um, and also trained in um, Vipassana or insight meditation. And he had this insight, he had this kind of like uh, kind of revelation that the practices he had learned, the Buddhist practice he had learned could be potentially very helpful for people who were experiencing chronic um, pain or intense um, levels of stress. And he um, was a, uh, a scientist at University of Massachusetts. And he created this kind of secularized version of Buddhist practice, which became known as mindfulness-based stress reduction, MBSR. And it's probably um, been one of the most um, influential sort of forms of meditation practice in the modern world. Um, and um, and when people talk about mindfulness, you know, um, they're often thinking of the kind of system that that Kabat-Zinn first developed and has become sort of you know um, export into and many other different kinds of realms. Like uh, the last couple of weeks we were together, I talked a bit about um, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, and that's just basically the use of MBSR to treat patients who are at risk of relapse into depression. Um, And I think that for all sorts of good reasons, the secularized kind of um, scientific medicalized version of mindfulness that Kabat-Zinn developed and made so popular, um, sort of brackets, remains silent about some of the kind of um, sort of liberation, like sort of more religious or spiritual sort of, um, sort of underpinnings of, of um, the original cultural system that mindfulness was removed from or taken from. You know, so the Eightfold Path is about liberation, right, from suffering. And often liberation from suffering that comes from the seeing through the illusory nature of the self. Um, so one of the, the thing that gives us freedom from the kind of cycle of suffering that the, the Buddha was talking about is when we can realize that the sense of self that we identify with um, is actually uh, insubstantial. It's not real in the way that we take it to be. It's, a, it's, it's functionally necessary and useful in the world. We need a sense of self in order to live in the world and function in the world. It's very useful. 
So in that sense, it's 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 not a bad thing. But when we start, when we when we take that sense of self as the ultimate truth about who we are, um, then it can lead to uh, deep forms of suffering. Um, and um, mindfulness, as it is um, sort of become popularized in the United States, doesn't talk about that aspect of Buddhism almost at all. Um, it considers that sort of like a, the religious or spiritual dimension of, of um, meditation practice and something that's not appropriate for um, sort of discussion in, in sort of medical therapeutic context. Um, and so what we have is a practice, mindfulness, as part of a larger system of practices that was developed in order to help us become free of this sense of self. Um, but that remains silent about that larger sort of framework or goal or, or purpose for the practice. And so what really naturally happens then is that Practitioners in the West who take up mindfulness begin to use mindfulness as a tool that can enhance the well-being of the self. So instead of becoming something that helps free us from this kind of um, delusion, you know, um, this illusion or delusion, right? Um, meditation mindfulness can very naturally become a kind of instrument or tool that is um, used by the self for its own purposes. Um, and I think that um, the place where now that's, this has all been kind of theoretical, but I think this is the place where now I want to get to how it affects our actually like nitty-gritty practice. It is very easy when someone is first learning meditation practice, and actually not even just when first learning it, but when even after one has done it for a while, to um, to really like approach mindfulness and meditation as something that I do, as an activity of the self that um, can actually somewhat sort of ironically, paradoxically, make the self feel even like more solid, you know, um, um, so one of the ways this can look, and I'm speaking from experience here, it's not, this is not like some kind of abstract like thing that might happen, but this is from my own experience and experience of people, I, a lot of people that I've, I've sort of worked with and talked um, with about practice is that um, the kind of awareness that mindfulness sort of encourages can start 
to become a form of hyper self-consciousness where you're always kind of monitoring your own experience. You're always keeping track of, you know, um, every single sensation, every single thought, as if um, the point was to, 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 to not let any sort of moment slip by, but always in a way sort of um, uh, keep a grip on, you know, um, your, the moment by moment passing experience. Um, and um, And so I think something important to be um, sort of attuned to is as one practices mindfulness or meditation, as we've been doing, as we do it in, on these Tuesday nights together, is um, to look out for moments when it starts to feel like we're using our awareness in order to um, hold tight or even to have some kind of control over our experience, right? Um, almost as if there's something like an anxiousness underwriting that moment by moment experience. Um, that awareness. It's like, I, I, I want to, you know, as if like um, the point is to always know, um, to, to, to have a handle on what, it, what I'm feeling or thinking at any given moment. Um, I think one, um, because the, the awareness practice that we're doing is actually um, ultimately intended to get us to a point where that kind of self-consciousness, that self-awareness dissolves and we, we can just slip into the activity that we're doing. We can, we're either just hearing, we're just breathing, we're just sitting. Or to take another example, like, we're just eating. If we're like, for example, practicing mindful eating. So um, I remember, um, I, I think I've told this story a couple of times over the, the, the past few years, but um, when I first moved to the Zen Center in Santa Rosa, California, Snow Mountain Zen Center. So I was 18 years old. And I think I had um, sort of maybe read some, um, books about um, insight meditation practice or Vipassana. And, and maybe I'd even read a bit of, about um, MBSR. I'm not sure if it actually had been developed at that point yet. Um, but maybe it was just the early days of MBSR. And I don't, any, and any of you who had um, ex exposure to MBSR will know that one of the first practices that's, that um, students are introduced to in that system is that the raisin eating exercise, right? Where you take a raisin and you look at it really carefully. And, you know, over like taking minutes to do this, like slowly you put it in your mouth and then you chew on it. And you, you experience every single sort of micro component of the experience of eating a raisin. You know, it's actually a wonderful thing. If you've never done it, you should try it. Um, the, one of the, one of the purposes of that raisin eating exercise is simply to 
wake people up to the fact that they do most things in their lives half asleep. You know, when we eat, we're not actually aware of the experience of eating. You know, um, we eat kind of, you know, just unconsciously. And, and um, you know, some, sometimes, you know, you're just like shoveling food into your mouth. It's just something you do to get through a meal, to get some energy, right, then to move. And maybe we're even doing it while we're reading the newspaper or watching TV or whatever, whatever, you know, well, what have you. But we're not really attending to the experience of eating, you know, very carefully. And so it shows people like, wow. I've eaten maybe like hundreds of thousands of raisins in my life, and yet I've never tasted a raisin in this way. I've never really experienced what a raisin can taste like. And so that's a, that's a really amazing experience, right? Um, and so it shows you both how we often are asleep and what it might feel like to, to engage in everyday activity, like eating a raisin or eating anything else with wakefulness. And that's a beautiful thing. Um, so I remember in, internalizing the sense that to eat in a meditative or contemplative way was to eat in this like super slow motion way, you know, like, like observing in this hyper aware way, every single component of, of, you know, the experience, like, you know, you're supposed to like when saliva is produced, what it feels like to have the intention to swallow, what it feels like for the, 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 the you know, the chewed up masticated raisin to slowly begin make its way down the throat, you know, all of that, right? Like that's literally the, the directions are at that like microscopical level. And it's, it's kind of wonderful. Um, um, and I, I recommend it. Okay. But I moved to the Zen center. Um, and we had uh, a meal in the in the meditation hall, um, and I remember this is I think during the first retreat that I um, they ever did, and so people have been sitting for hours, right? Um, and um, and so they've been sitting the, like the long time the night before. They'd wake woken up and they sat for a couple hours there in the morning, and finally we like it's like maybe the third hour they were sitting cross-legged on the floor. So people are starting to get a little bit, you know, it's their backs are starting to feel it a little bit, you know, um, and their knees and all that stuff. And, and we, we, and I, and I, I eat my food in this way, like, like it's brown rice, right. Or way it's oatmeal, it's breakfast. And like, it's like, I'm just chewing really slowly. My eyes are closed again, even more into the experience. I'm aware of every single, you know, like component of this experience. Right. And I look up after having two bites and everyone else is done with their entire meal, you know, and they're just sitting there, like really trying hard not to look like they're looking at me, you know, like, like, and like, if, if, if they, if their feet weren't like tucked under themselves, like the cross legged, they would have been tapping their feet. It's like, what the hell, you know, who is this newbie? Like this noob who doesn't know how to like eat. Right. Um, and so, um, and I think it took me a while living at the Zen Center to realize that actually one doesn't need to, um, eat in this hyper aware way in order to eat with presence that you don't it, eating mindfully or eating with presence does not mean eating in a way where one is hyper conscious of every single component of the eating process right it just means eating and that's why actually when you go to zen temples um you what you'll see is people eating in a focused way but eating quickly you know they're 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 chewing they take exactly as many you know they bite they chew the food exactly as much as necessary in order to swallow and then they take another bite of food and they swallow right and the meal goes pretty quickly but people there's an intense amount of focus 
people are there eating. They're not, their minds are all over the place, right? But they're present. And I think this is when I first started to get clued in the difference into the distinction between sort of um, the kind of awareness that I think we can sometimes associate with the word mindfulness, which can sometimes become interpreted by us as a form of hyper self-consciousness. Like I'm, I'm, I'm almost like cognitively aware of every single moment, you know? And the experience of just losing yourself in activity, you know? So when you eat, you just eat. Like, you know, the saying goes, when you chop, chop wood, you just chop wood, right? When you carry water, you're just carrying water, right? When you sit, you just sit. When you sleep, you just sleep. It's not about being hyper self-conscious about what all those activities um, consistent. Um, and so over the years, I think that um, I've sensed these moments in my own practice where the awareness itself starts to become I don't know, like it's it's hard. It's it, it's a subtle feeling that I'm talking about, and I um, but it's almost like anal, you know, almost like you're you're like you're becoming uptight about being aware. Like awareness is a as a it's almost like something I just don't want to I don't want to lose track of, you know. I, I gotta I gotta stay on top of this, you know. Um, and and I think that unless you're and one of the reasons I'm I'm sharing what I'm sharing tonight is because you can very easily think that actually that is what it's supposed to feel like, you know, as if you're supposed to be hypervigilant. Vigilant might be another way to describe this feeling. Anal is maybe a little bit more colloquial, but hypervigilant or controlling. Like I don't, I don't I'm like I'm I'm too tight a grip on on the moment, right? Instead of um, just letting the moment be, you know, eating and just like eating naturally and just being there as you eat or walking naturally, you know, not walking in this hyper self-conscious way. Um, and I think one of the, one of the reasons why I did sound as an anchor tonight is because by inviting us to put our awareness on something outside of the mind and body, it gives us a taste of what it's like to be present where we're not being hyper aware of our internal processes, you know? Um, so, because I think a lot of people, and I think some people who are here tonight have had this experience that when you start to follow the breath, suddenly the breath starts to get tight. Like I breathe, I, I breathe without any problem, but suddenly when I'm meditating, my breath starts to feel forced and tight, almost like constricted. And it's because when it's, when we bring our awareness to the breath in this kind of hypervigilant tight way that I'm talking about, it can be experienced as a form of tightness in the breath. And, um, and we can start to monitor our thoughts in this kind of also hypervigilant way as well. So it is, of course, and I, you know, anyone who's been here for, and on, on these calls for a long time know that it's cr crucial part of this practice to be aware of the breath to be aware of thoughts, to be aware of sensations. But I think it's really useful once in a while to pick an anchor that doesn't focus on those internal processes. So you get a taste of what it's like to just 
let those inner processes, breath, thoughts, sensations, be a part of your awareness, but not the focus, as it were, of one's awareness, right? Um, and when they're focused, they can so often, so easily become objects that we kind of are trying to get a grip on, control in some way. So the only way to listen in the way that we were doing earlier is actually to kind of just like relax. Because I don't know if you guys experienced this, like when you try too hard to listen in this way, you actually can't hear that well. The effort of trying to listen too hard actually makes hearing more difficult. The only way to truly listen in that receptive open way that I was talking about earlier is to, it's, it's interesting, you got to like keep your awareness focused there, but you can't try too hard. It has to be a very soft kind of effort. And so it gives us a taste of the kind of effort that awareness or mindfulness is asking for as well. An effort that is soft, right? Not tight, not controlling. Okay. So, um, so mindfulness is a method designed to help us see beyond the self. Is to help us in a way um, let go of the self. And so it's important to be aware, be attuned to the possibility that mindfulness can become co-opted as a kind of instrument or tool of the self. And that's going to happen. But to feel what it feels like to start to be kind of tight or hypervigilant or anal, right? As I as I put it, about one's mindfulness practice. And then that, and then sort of say, okay, I'm just noticing that actually my mindfulness practice is itself becoming a little bit tight-fisted. Can I can I practice easing into the moment rather than keeping a grip on the moment? This is all, I don't know, it's like, it's hard. I'm trying to, it's, I actually would be curious in what way this is landing or not landing for people. You know, if, if, if this resonates with someone, I think it would be really helpful for you to speak up so that other people would have like a slightly different way of, of hearing what I'm trying to get at. But, um, okay, so let me, let me just pause there and say, does, does this resonate with anyone? And would you be willing to share a little bit of how it resonates for you? Okay. Um, and also, of course, that there's confusion too, but but let me just um, leave a little space here. Yeah, Bernie. Hi, John. I, I think your talk tonight articulated very well something that I. I've been thinking about and and didn't wasn't able to put it together with the clarity that you did tonight. Uh, I guess the challenge is to find that middle ground between staying engaged but not, you know, letting it take over. And um, you know, certainly I've been very aware of of how some of these practices uh, only exacerbate yourselves sense of self and um, you know it would be nice to be able to find a way to 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 accomplish the 
the kind of attitude that you described. Thank you, John. I really appreciate that. Um, I'm surprised you use the word clarity. But I don't think it was being clear at all. But um, but um, I'm glad that enough of it seemed clear enough that it was it was useful in that way. And it's like it's right effort. I think is actually one of the trickiest parts of the eightfold path, right? Like how because you can't be too slack, or else you're just you know you're just going to daydream, right? Or it's just like not going to nothing, but it's too tight, right? And then it 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 also goes awry that way. Um, and I think it's just going to be a constant. You know, it's just like when people tune an instrument, it's like, it's, you can, you go too tight. You, you just got to find that balance. And it's, it's interesting. Um, I could just add one thing. I, you know, I, I, I have had occasions recently where I have um, had a sense that I've, I've found that balance. And, and I didn't know what to call it. I didn't know how to describe it, but it, it seemed different than, than, um, uh, the usual more rigid focus, uh, and you know how how you can bring that about uh, yeah. again. I don't know. Yeah. You know, I'll say, John. I think that how to bring it about. One thing that I think I, is really helpful for me is approaching daily activities with this kind of awareness, like folding laundry, doing the dishes, other things. It often, um, you know, I can, like, am I just folding the laundry or am I daydreaming or am I being too, you know, kind of like self-conscious as I'm folding laundry? Like those, like, I mean, laundry is one of my go-to practices. And I think, it's it's often in those daily activities that I can I can feel my way into this balance that you're talking about, and so I think it's really important to take the practice off the cushion. You, you, the cushion is necessary; it's absolutely necessary to, to to hone our awareness on in our seat, in the meditation seat. But I think if we don't bring it to everyday activities like walking, doing the dishes, eating, doing the laundry, I think we're we're shortchanging ourselves. Yeah. Hi, Bernie. It's Mary. I I I can't find how to put myself on camera. <laughs> um. Anyway, I think I think that you explained it very well about yes we need to be mindful but not too mindful if that makes sense <laughs> of our moments in in the day but not to dwell on it yeah i think that's what you were saying yeah yeah thanks mary yeah sort of <laughs> yes yeah. i think that's what you're saying but yeah, it's a qual the quality of awareness, right? Yeah, um, yeah, and and I think um, you know, <laughs> I think that the last thing I'll I'll say, I'll just this is a thought that I'll I'll leave everyone with is, I think sometimes when I feel myself getting kind of tight in the way that I was trying to describe, it's a moment. It those are moments when I realize I'm using practice as a defense. I'm using my meditation practice in a kind of ulterior way I realize 
as a way to try to um, manufacture stability in my life, you know? And I think whenever, like, and it, it's what the thing that's important for me to remind myself of is that practice isn't about pr producing peace or calm or it's actually about opening to life however life is and life is unstable always in flux it's characterized by impermanence and change and so this kind of tight vigilant form of mindfulness practice that i've been talking about and in a way warning all of us about is actually a use of mindfulness in order to create a false sense of stability you know as if like okay life will be even keeled if i can maintain the state of awareness but actually practice is about opening to the instability of life you know and that produces its own kind of equanimity and peace but it's very different from one that's kind of controlling and i think consistent with stuff i've been talking about over the last few weeks practice is often about these kind of cycles where we realize oh i'm using practice as a way to sort of escape something in myself escape something about my experience or condition right and then realizing that it's not about being the perfect practitioner and never making those kind of mistakes it's really of course we will use practice in those ways as expressions of fears expressions of anxiety expressions of a desire to control or to manage our experience and then you see that and that's how you open to the deeper potential of practice which is practice is an opening to instability you know opening to the fullness of life um, okay so um that's more than enough for tonight we'll um we'll continue next week so can we sit for um for just a uh, 30 seconds or so together before we say good night i'll tell you all when this is um this time is over Okay, everyone. Thank you all for being here. It's good to see you all. Good night. Thank you and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Happy Bye -bye. New Year. Good to see you. Bye, Bernie. Thank you, Bernie. Bye-bye. Thank, Thank you. you.